Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to the John G. Moore Podcast. This week's guest, Kent Wells. Man, I've known for longer than either one of us would like to admit. What was the name of the street that you grew up on? You lived right across the street from Scotty Davis. That's how I think you and I originally met. Yeah, it was called Click Street. And um, every time I go back to Ashdown, I drive down that road to see my my old homestead and it gets that street gets smaller and smaller for some reason. I guess as I get older. Does it look pretty much the same? I, I have to be honest. I haven't been over there in years. Man, it does. It, it's it's spooky. My dad had a, a makeshift body shop in the backyard that we worked on in and that we built. I remember building that thing and um, a fence that I built that I helped him build. You know, in the back in the seventies. It's all still there. It's bizarre. It's just it's like it's a time capsule. You know. I grew up on Beach Street until I was about 12, and then my parents built a house on Locust Street over right by the high school. Unfortunately, when it came time to get a driver's license, I didn't have the argument I needed a car because I could walk to school, but eventually I did get a car. (laughs) But anyway, the reason I wanted to talk to you is because of uh, your, your huge successes in your career. I'll tell you what I remember sort of as a preface to this discussion here. I can remember going over to Scotty's house and us going across the street, either jamming or, you know, I played guitar, Scotty played drums. You were, you and Scotty were in a band, then I was in a different band. But all musicians like to share new things they learn. And I remember your dad, who was one of the coolest guys ever, by the way, would bring you a new instrument. And within a short amount of time, you seem to have mastered it. So let's talk about the instruments that you play, what all instruments on your guitar, I think is probably your number one, but what are your, what's your range? What all do you play? Well, well, I play at a lot of instruments, you know, drums, bass, banjo, fiddle, all that stuff, piano, but, and you know, when I came to Nashville and joined the musicians union, I listed all that stuff on my musicians uh, profile. And then as the years went on, I took all of them off except guitar and banjo because i realized the difference in a real bass player and and what i could do but um you know it's funny my dad you know exposed me to all that stuff it's funny how it became you know part of the fabric of me being able to do what i do professionally quote unquote you know professional if there's such thing as a professional musician because you know really being able to just play a little bit on some of those instruments has opened so many doors for me to get work opportunities and and even play them on records and things and and tours so it's funny because you you just never know what god has planned for you but you know uh, certainly because dad would just you know my dad was heavy-handed with us He, he just loved music so much he would just forced me to play country i hated playing country you know i wanted to play steely dan and kiss and all that stuff that we used to play together and um but dad would make me listen to fair and young and ray price and try to play the fiddle and stuff i mean he literally would like make me do it and i would be so mad and slam doors and sneak off and hide from him and stuff you know but it's funny man when i got a job one of the first jobs I got up here was with Keith Whitley, and I had to double on fiddle. And I hated playing fiddle. Like, fiddle, me playing fiddle at the house was like a stupid human trick that Dad would make me do at church get-togethers and stuff, you know. 
and I'd put it down and be like, God, I hate playing fiddle. But funny how all that played in. I even played fiddle with Dolly when I first started with her. So it's funny. Tonight. Nowadays, I try not to play all that stuff. I try to play guitar. Let's talk about your your voyage to Nashville because I was in sort of in and out of your your career because I was working in the radio business and I remember you I can't remember if you opened for a country act at Texarkana College but the radio station for which I was working at the time we were out doing live broadcast during the day and I actually interviewed you on the air that day and you if I remember correctly were you owned a music jamboree in Nashville Arkansas am I am I remembering this correctly yeah, that was another one of those happy accidents. My brother, Dennis, who you know, he decided to build a dental practice in Nashville, Arkansas, when he graduated dental school in 1982. And I, looking for something to do that summer and trying to not have to work at the paper mill. And so he said, hey, man, there's a an old movie theater here on Main Street that's open for the summer because the guy had a drive-in theater and the air conditioning didn't work in his movie theater. So in the summer, he would show movies at the drive-in. And then in winter, he'd bring everybody back indoors to the Alberta Theater. And so on a whim, we rented that place. And Alan Funderburk, who you know, I grabbed Alan and he helped me. We built a stage. We put up sound and lights. Of course, Alan always had, he was a horse trader. So he always had PA. He, he always had all the cool stuff. He had a cool PA and lights, and we we turned it into a pretty cool-looking little setup there with these par 64s, and we were trying to look like Huey Lewis in the news, you know, and playing modern country. And I brought people in from college and guys that I had met along the way that were pretty good, you know, good talent. And we really started selling that thing out on the weekends. It was, it was like the Ashdown Jamboree. That's where I got the idea, obviously. I did that for about a year and a half. I ended up buying that theater from the guy that summer. So at, at 20 years old, I'm, I'm on this theater and I'm sitting there going, okay, what do I, do I want to live here the rest of my life? I was really enjoying that period, but something about Nashville, Tennessee was called. I just had this bug that maybe I could come out here. And, and I knew if I waited too long, I wouldn't be able to do that. You know, I should get, I already had a child on the way and had a, was married. And, and so I was like, man, it was literally like an overnight decision to come to Nashville and, and kind of put my hook in the water and see what I could do out here. And I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't know a soul out here. Rented an apartment sight unseen and drove out here. And then God just helped me, you know, bump my way through and not get not get demolished and sent back home with my tail between my legs. A lot of fortunate events. I don't recommend what I did to others looking back well it's probably not i mean it's apples and oranges between night the early 1980s or the mid 1980s and today I, the story i remember you telling me is you you went in you put up the typical piece of paper like you would in a dormitory that yes. said you know i'm a guitar player i'm looking for a gig here's you tear the phone number off and is did keith whitley call you himself is that what happened no it's so funny man and you know you join the union. That's what somebody told me to do. Go join the union. I joined the union. It cost me 200 bucks, which back then, with a finite amount of money in my pocket, that was that was rough. I was like, man, 200 bucks? Okay. Put my card. They had this little bulletin board in the middle of the of the union hall there, and I, I 
feel bad to this day, but I moved some guys and things around and put mine right like at eye level. And I put all those instruments that I played on there, you know, fudging it big time. And two days later, this man named Carson Chamberlain called me. And Carson was representing Keith Whitley. Well, I kind of knew of Keith through Bluegrass because I was a big Ricky Skaggs fan, but didn't really, wasn't a fan, you know, of his Bluegrass stuff. And I went over to his apartment at Tanglewood Apartments over here on Harding Place and jammed with those guys for a whole afternoon. And when we walked out, Keith walked out with me and goes, hey, buddy, we love your playing. If you want to play with us, we're cutting a TV show Friday. Can you learn the whole album by Friday? And I was like, heck yeah, I'm on. So, and literally on Friday of that same week, the first week I lived here, I found myself standing there with Steve Warner and Ricky Skaggs and Reba and Vince Gill and all these people out in the audience that were big Keith Whitley fans coming to watch him tape. It was this show that was on the National Network called New Country where you debut your new album, you might remember it. It was a big deal to me, and man, I was shaking in my boots, and here I am standing up there playing playing with all those guys, and Hoot Hester and Chip uh, Young were in the band with us, and it was like, wow. And um, it's so funny because Ricky Skaggs was the whole reason I came to Nashville. He was doing old country, but doing it hip and young and with kind of virtuoso type players. And I met him like the first week I lived here and became friends with him. And literally, you can draw a line, a continuum from that day where I met all those people that I wound up working with every one of them to some degree and wanted to work with them. So, again, it's that whole thing of God's plan because, you know, I couldn't have couldn't have made drawn that up, you know. It's just d- dumb luck and fate and... and god's favor i guess because i know guys that come here and they don't get ever a call to do anything you know Uh, and it's not because they're not talented i mean everybody that comes here is great you know i've I've, every the guy waiting your table at applebee's is probably a better musician than than you are you know it's it's so humbling to get to find any kind of a thread and get to work that's what amazes me is i've i keep thinking how am I getting this work? Because I ain't that good, you know? I mean, I know I'm pretty good at things, but it's like there's there's guys here just walking around roller skating at Sonic, man, that can just hand you a demo, and it's like, oh, my goodness, this guy's incredible. So you know how that goes. Well, yeah, I mean... You've been out in the world, you know. But it, it was that way in the radio business as well, and mm-hmm. it's it really mm-hmm. is whether it's whether you're a musician or a disc jockey or you, know, you have an MBA and you're working in a large corporation, it's all about relationships. So I think that's what's interesting mm-hmm. to, to me about your story. By the way, you're listening to the John G. Moore podcast, and my guest is Kent Wells. We've known each other since childhood. Kent now lives in uh, Brentwood, Tennessee, and you have, what, two recording studios? You have one at home and one in um, Franklin? Yeah. Yeah, the one at home is is more my office. It, nowadays, you can call a laptop a recording studio, you, so man. it's it's not it's not elaborate. We are recording this podcast on a <laughs> computer as well, so yeah, everything yeah, is right, is right. as migrate. Well, hey, I want to talk about you now. When Me? we were kids, you were 
the rock and roll singer that everybody wanted in their band. Oh, you could hit really? the notes. We that never was... had a good singer in my bands. We were guitar player heavy, but we didn't have a great singer. And I got to play with you one or two times, and you sang, and you could really sing the stuff legit. But, well, that's um, kind of you to say. Thank you. It was one of the it was one of the things that I you talk about God giving you an ability. Now I probably couldn't hit those notes today, but but back in the day I was a much better singer than a guitar player. But I do still I do still have instruments and I do still play every now and then when I can find the time. But do you play the banjo? Did I see that somewhere? I actually uh, wound up selling my banjo to a, oh. a buddy of mine uh, from church. Who, who wanted it a whole lot more than I obviously did, because when he offered me the money, I took it. But uh, <laughs> So yeah. I, had a, I had a Deering Sierra, which was, uh, it was a 2001 model. And so it, yeah, it was a great banjo, and I, and I loved playing, and I played for a long time and, and really enjoyed it. But I decided to pare down. I've got, um, as far as guitars, I, what happened, to be honest with you, Kent, and for those who who play and have recording studios you can understand this i invested in a sound booth so i have a recording studio but inside my studio i have a four by six sound booth which is what i use to record uh books for audible i, I do book narration as well so i ran out of space and some stuff had to go and it wasn't going to be my guitar so i've got a, a paul reed smith and a strat and some oh, other stuff please, so. yeah so i decided to uh one other memory I have of you that I'll never forget, very vivid and fond, is one day, just randomly, you played me, I sat in your car, and you played me ACDC Back in Black, the first time I heard it. And it, and, and consequently, that's one of my favorite, you know, that's one of my Desert Island albums, and that's, you know, lots of people would say that about that record, if you're a rock fan, but I remember you, we went track by track, you played me the whole thing. And because you always kind of had a, you and this guy, Randy Needham, I think was his name. Y'all always had like the hippest finger on what's coming out and what was cool. And um, he played me that whole album and I'll never forget it. And it, it's never sounded as good as it did that day in your car. Trying to, I've, I've had all these elaborate studio speakers and sometimes I'll sit, you know, with a glass of wine or something at night and turn down the lights and put on back in black and, you know, do it on vinyl and everything. And it never sounds as good as that day. I think I was a junior in high school or maybe a senior. Well, I had a pair of Altec Lansing Voice of the Highway speakers and Steve Scarborough helped me build the boxes in the back <laughs> to uh, encase those speakers. I had a 72 Cutlass. And one of the reasons it sounded as good as it did, I had one of the first digital Sony and mm -hmm. dash cassette decks, and that's what we were listening to it on. But uh, mm -hmm. yeah, that's I, I took great pride. Jim Apel and myself and Randy Needham all took great pride in discovering new stuff and sharing it with friends. But I had completely forgotten about that. You um, guys were the gurus for sure. Well, well, part of that was working in the radio business. You know, you got to hear all the stuff first because the record companies would send it directly to the radio station. So I could go when I signed off at midnight and sit in the in the production room and listen to all this stuff and decide whether I thought it was any good or not. Um, but right. anyway, yeah. So uh, thanks for sharing those memories. That's nice. Your journey to Nashville, I, I have to say, that took a lot of guts just to get up and go with absolutely nothing ahead of you to guarantee you that you were going to have enough money to eat. So 
How much of this was faith and how much of this was, I just know I can do this? Well, that's interesting. I mean, I, I really felt confident for some reason. And again, knowing what I know now, I wouldn't have had that confidence. But there's ignorance is bliss, they say. But I also had a, a really unusual advantage in that my support group with my dad and my brother, Dennis, my mom, and my whole family was really behind me. And that's not always the case with somebody trying to chase down a dream like that, you know. And so I got nothing but, but you know, green lights from everybody. Everybody was pushing me to do it as well because, truthfully, if, if some people hadn't been pushing me, I, pro- I might not have done it. I might have been a little too comfy there in Nashville, Arkansas, you know. But um, it was that. It was, a good, it was a good combination where everything was just right. And I knew if I fell on my face, I could always come back home and, and pick up where I left off. So go back to what you were doing. I'm thankful for I don't take for granted the opportunities that were given to me by my family. And, you know, you, you saw with my dad and, and Dennis, man, they were they were so carried away with with me playing music because they loved music so much, you know. And um, it just tickled my dad, you know, for me to get up and play and stuff. And he was just so loving and, and, and just it was his passion and I guess it'd be similar to like if, if your dad was a golfer and kind of a scratch golfer and he could push you into doing better or something like that, you know. It, it was scary, man. I mean, I, I was scared. I won't lie. I, I was – and the first night I lived here, the guys that helped me unpack took me down to this dive bar called the Station Inn on Murfreesboro Road, and I heard Brent Mason play, and Brent, and Brent just – playing you know a four-hour club gig so he played everything he knew and then some and just everything from bebop to jerry reed and everything that i was trying to figure out how to play at that time that was humbling and scary i think i went home and called my dad and said dad i don't know about this because i thought (laughs) the logic was if there's a guy like that that's probably the crappiest bar i've ever been in in my whole life and there's a band like that with that guitar player in there what else is lurking around here you know there's not a guitar player like Brent lurking around. But let's Work. talk about the timeline of the artist for whom you've worked for and with. Currently, um, I would say Dolly Parton is the majority of your career. Would that be a correct statement? Yeah, yeah, that's true, man. I, I got with her, but before I, when I came here, you know, all I wanted to do was ride a bus and get one of those satin tour jackets with my name on it and be a lead guitar player for somebody. I didn't know there was anything greater than that and um, to aspire to. So I got that gig with Keith, and then from there I got a gig with Earl Thomas Conley and toured. We opened for Hank Jr. the whole year, and that was great. And I actually got to play with Hank on some dates too, in and out of some of his guitar players, so that was cool. And then I worked for Lee Greenwood, who I was really keen to work with because he's such a great musician and was kind of doing a more R&B-flavored country vibe and then i think i worked after lee my my college roommate david slater got won the star search contest so he had a deal momentarily at capitol and so i i quit lee and i toured with with david so i was doing these year-long touring stints i would tour a year and then somebody else would offer me something better and i'd go do that you know and i was quite content doing that and then i was playing some demo sessions and stuff and then in 1988, I got a call to play 
from Gary Smith, who was a prominent piano player here in town, who a lot of people hired to, to put bands together. He was Ricky Skaggs' piano player, played that famous solo on Country Boy and all that stuff. Great player. Gary Bud called me and said, hey, man, Reba McIntyre's looking for a guitar player. And I'm like, man, I don't know. I'm not that into Reba, to be honest. I said, are you going to do it? And he goes, nah. He said, between me and you, Dolly's going to put a band together in two months. So, And I said, well, what about that? And he said, yeah, you want to do that? I said, absolutely. I'd love to play for Dolly. So I passed on the Reba gig, got a friend of mine, recommended, and, and tragically, he wound up dying on the plane crash in 91. I lost several friends that were in that band. Yeah, I remember that. That was that awful. Was the, that was fate for me that I wasn't yeah. on that plane because if I had taken that job, I, I would have been on that. But um, so I, that's when I started working for Dolly. It was '88, and then um, you know, I just started playing in her band, and then and Dolly would tour, and then she would stop touring, and then you know we'd be laid off, and be like, all right, what are we gonna do now? So I played with the Oak Ridge Boys one year, and I played for Reba for several years, and played on some records with her, and did some of that, and, and helped co-produce some of her stuff, and then I wound up being back. Um, Dolly called me in 19, or no, not 19, Dolly called me in 2001, I think it was, and said, hey, I'm doing this bluegrass record out here, and I'm stuck, and I need you to come help me. And I'm like, me? Okay, I'm not a bluegrass guy. But I, so I went out and helped her with the album, and then since then I've been producing her records, you know, mostly. She did a TV soundtrack last year that I didn't produce. Linda Perry did that, but... Um, I've been involved or produced just about all of her stuff for 20 years. And so, and I've toured with her and been her musical director. So that's, it's been nice because she doesn't tour weekend warrior style year round, you know. We'll go out for 45 days to Europe and come back and that's that. Or we'll go to Australia for 50 days and come back. Or we'll do a Europe, we did a States tour in 2016 that was 65 shows. So it's more, uh, it's more conducive to family. It's more concentrated pockets of work. So, and then you know I produce scads of independent artists and do do my recording and just that's what I do, man. It's, that's my life. Mostly just hang around my house and try to be a, a dad and you know just a dopey dude that I am, <laughs> messing with my motorcycles and putzing around, you know. So talk about a typical project with Dolly. I mean, if she calls and says, I want to do an album, or she says, we're going to go do a tour, I can remember, you know, you, as you mentioned earlier, you were in a band called Bondego. I was in a band called Freedom. And we didn't play a whole lot of gigs, but when, when we did play, now much later, you mentioned Alan Funderburk. I was in a band with him, and we did play a lot of gigs. And course you have roadies now but we didn't back then but even just the limited amount of of gigs that we played it was pretty exhausting and we were young guys so mm -hmm. how do you how do you keep up your stamina i mean we're not spring chickens anymore how do you keep up your stamina when you're on the road for these long stretches well the road is nice because you can as a guitarist in a gig like dolly where <laughs> you don't have to hustle your equipment around and things like that you know you pretty much hang out your professional time killer we, we joke about so you hang out all day in the room so i would you know those are times i can focus on exercise and eating right and taking care of myself and toning down the stress you know sometimes i'll bring a little rig up to the room and overdub or write or, or practice but 
you know, it, it's the, it's the travel between the shows that's gets challenging for old guys. But uh, you know, it's not too bad. I got conditioned to it young in life. You know, I can ride a bunk on a bus as good as anybody. You know, and so I don't know. It's just all I know. But you know, it helps that I don't have to do all the logistical stuff, and I don't have to set up gear and those kind of things you know it's pretty cushy job if you want to know the truth the The main thing is just the mental you know staying connected to your family that was always the challenge for me that's why i quit in 2020 i was in brazil with reba and i had just had it i was like i can't do this one more day and i i went to narvel and said man i'm out you know and uh, i was so burnt on touring but with Dolly, it's not, like I said, it's not the weekend warrior. That's why I've stayed with her and keep going out to tour with her, because it's, it's kind of fun and change of scenery from staring at the studio screen all day. You know. You've had a fascinating life. I mean, you have to admit, you've, you've had, do you, do you feel like this was a meant-to-be God thing, or did all the stars align? Is it, is it partially this? Do you feel like this was your calling, I guess is my question. Yeah, I think so think about that sometimes because i again man it's a series of of just lucky breaks really i was always a bashful kid and didn't really want to i loved the guitar but i didn't really like being out on stage and didn't have any confidence to do any of that performing but um you know yeah i I mean i think i just look back it's like it almost was meant to be because all the little things that I did monkeying around with music with my brother and trying to record ourselves on little four-track cassette players and stuff when we were kids. And it just all seemed to kind of be this journeyman education or, or primer to be halfway capable at what I'm doing now. But I will tell you this, every time I get in the room with Dolly or any all these great players, you know, I mean, I've played on sessions with Chet Atkins and stuff like that. I found myself in the deep end of the pool and every time, and to this day, I still get nervous. Dolly's coming in right now. She'll be here in a minute to sing. And it's like, man, I'm all, I got to play her some vocals. And it's always like I'm in over my head. You know, there's always that low-level anxiety that you you never, uh, you know, you never get past, man. And and I talk to a lot of my other buddies, and this a lot of my heroes say the same things. Like, man, I'm sure you get it. I know you're like me. You're up early. You're prepping. You got that energy. You've got that that buzz that keeps you I always had a little bit of ambition you know sometimes I wish I would have applied that ambition to some other career that had a little more of a continuum you know because this career you can have an incredible 18 months and then you can be sitting without a job you know there's literally no net you know there is no retirement there's no security there's no gold watch in the music business it's grab and get what you can grab and it's a it's a dog fight but Looking back, I sure wouldn't trade it. You know, I've gotten to see the world and I've gotten to play music with my heroes and things and, you know, meet so many great people. And uh, So I don't take it for granted. But, you know, it's a lot different than what probably people imagine that it is. It's it's a lot more of a normal job than people think, you know. Radio, I'm sure people think in your job, oh, it's so glamorous. Very rarely is it glamorous. Pretty cool, but mostly it's hard work and 
stress and just you know work and trying to keep up the pace and stay competitive as we get older that's harder too you know yeah people really do and i haven't been in the radio business in you know many years but i was in it for 25 years and people have this wkrp sort of vision of how you know the radio business works and it's it's not like that at all and of course because i worked in um, the radio business i saw the inside of the music business and working with artists you know they would come to town i've actually you know brought on stage reba and i don't think i ever brought dolly on stage but um kenny rogers you you meet all these people and they're just regular folks who are like you say doing a job but I have to ask you this question. Did you ever think of forming your own band and trying to go out on your own? I did, man. Back in the early 90s, I, for, for five seconds, I had a band. We were called The Ponies, and it was myself and Jimmy Mattingly, who's Garth Brooks' fiddle player. People may know him from that. He also plays with Dolly, my best friend. A guy named Wendell Mobley, and uh, who's written a bunch of Rascal Flatts hits and a lot of other hits, and uh, some other guys. And we had a deal on curb magnetone back for a minute and then we made a record and before the record released we couldn't get our operating agreement together because of lead singer disease and so we we disbanded so it's the record that never the band that never happened we were so frustrated by the time it was all done i I didn't want to be in a band i realized then nah I'll keep doing what I'm doing, but it was fun. We had we wrote some great songs. We had we made a good record, and um, it, it was fun. But I mean, yeah, I mean, I would have I would have liked to have been on a, a band playing like blues rock type stuff, you know. Like I love what Joe Bonamassa and Robin Ford and guys like that. Those are my guys that inspire me. And luckily, I get to go hear them a lot to play, and, and I've gotten to know those guys. But it's a uh, if I were going to do something at this point in life, I, I, I might go out and do a tour, round up some great players and go play that type of music. But, you know, it's again, it's that job factor. It's like I'm too busy doing my job in the music business to go pursue other dreams and, you know, forays. I admire the guys like Billy Sheehan's a buddy of mine, a rock, rock bass guy. And, he, and he's like, he. I admire how he can compartmentalize his session career and then he makes time to go be in all these cool bands like Winery Dogs and all that. And it's like, how do you do that, you know? But I stay so busy day to day, I can't hardly create the time to do it, you know? Maybe maybe I can slow down and, and do that before it's over. I hope so. I'd really like to make an album. I've never even made a solo album. It's like I'm in the studio every day and it's the cobbler's shoes. The last thing I want to do is sit down. Now I'm going to make my own album, you know? No, maybe maybe you can relate. I know. I know. With all the things you're into, you, sometimes you're just like, I just want to sit in my backyard. You know. Yeah, hard to focus sometimes when you have a lot of different things. But I, I think that's the sign of an active mind is when you have too many things on your plate. It, I equate it to the guy at the circus who's got you know ten tall sticks with the plates spinning and he never lets any of them drop. It's that. Yeah. It's right. that that's keeping exactly. them all up in the air kind of thing. You're listening to the John G. Moore Podcast, and our guest today is Kent Wells, a friend of mine from childhood. We've known each other a long time. Kent has been very successful in the music business, specifically in the country music business. 
let's talk about how much country the the industry itself record labels and all that has changed uh, i'll give you a typical scenario of when i was a music director at a country music station back in the early to mid 1990s i had tuesday mornings from 10 to noon i would take calls from the record reps and they would call and pitch their latest artist i can remember the first time somebody pitched me the name shania twain uh, so I, that was how, back then, records would get on the radio, is the record rep would convince the music director to give it a shot, to add it to the playlist, and you would test it out, see how it did. That's not how it works anymore. How has the change in the record business and you know five companies owning every single radio station in the United States, how has that affected the artist in trying to get their product on the air, Ken? Yeah, it's really... In my mind, it's going to sound like a geezer moment here, but, you know, it's really narrowed the bandwidth of creativity, uh, in my opinion. That's where I see it on the front lines here in the sessions. I mean, I can almost write a chart for a modern contemporary country song without even hearing it. You know, I can guess it at it, the one, six, minor, four, five, how you're going to jumble those up and the beat. It's so formulaic, you know, not room for, you know, a Lyle Lovett or a Gretchen Peters or a Rodney Crowell to penetrate through. And, you know, so it's frustrating. But, you know, it's the industry of music, man. You know, it, it's my son's heavily plugged into it. My son Derek is, is the top studio guitarist now at, at this moment. Your son is a yeah. truly talented man. Yeah, he's, he's a very talented, gifted kid, and he, you know, he... And he's producing some stuff, and he's right up in the middle of that new formula. And you know, so I, I'm not going to knock it, but I, there's just I don't hear the identity in the singers. That's what I miss, man. I, I've worked with some of the greatest singers in the business. I've recorded Merle Haggard. I've recorded Willie, Nora Jones, Dolly, Reba, Kenny Rogers. You know, artists that are unmistakable, and you don't have to wait till the the announcer says what the name is to know even who you just heard. You know, there's this identifiability in the music. And that, but you know, that strains through from the songwriters, that strains through from the producers, and of course the artists and the influences, and giving people free reign. What I see that the corporate radio thing has done is it's really narrowed the bandwidth on what is quote unquote radio and what is not. And labels aren't going to fight the fight to get a, they're not going to stay with an artist through five singles that flop like they used to to keep poking at radio to see what'll work you know they're, they're just not going to do it the, the margins aren't there for for profits so it is what it is you know and i and i applaud the guys that are staying in there and getting radio hits i know how hard that is to do i'm going to be honest with you because i've been out of the radio business long enough that i can i can speak as a consumer it seems every country song as you mentioned is formulaic it's there's some mention of a dirt road a pickup truck, tailgates, beer. It's the, There is no, if we make it through December, there is no blue eyes crying in the rain. There, You just don't hear those anymore. And if you tune in a radio station, a music radio station, it's the same 300 songs, including the oldies, no matter what city you're driving through. And I, I think, and I can say this because I worked in the business a long time, I think it's it's this generation's loss to never have known what you used to make and I used to play. Do you agree? Yeah. 
I, I do, you know, and again, that certainly sounds like I'm going, you know, back in my day, we did it, you know, but it's, I think even the young kids are seeing it, you know, there's a lot of people here in Nashville and, and my younger kids, my, my kids who are still in high school and my, my kid that's in graduate school, they, they really gravitate toward the older stuff, both rock and country, even, uh, you know, late 1979 through 81, that era of yacht rock type stuff and everything, man. It was just so well produced. The artists were so good. I don't know. It, it's it's interesting. I'll, I wonder if somebody will, 30 years from now, be putting on records that are popular now and go, oh, man, listen to that. How, you know, the production on that. I don't know. <laughs> I don't want to be that. When you look at a reunion of Led Zeppelin where it, back in 06 or 07 or whenever that was, and 20 million people tried to get you know, however many tickets it was, and it crashed the website. And I, I made the point at the time, I don't even remember who I was talking to. I said, I don't see the day where somebody says, gee, do you think Casey and the Sunshine Band will ever get back together? I just, I don't see, there's certain, you know, pieces of musical history that are more significant than others. And I, I don't see any Garth Brooks right now. I think that's why uh, you said you were currently working on an album with Dolly, a Christmas album. It's why Dolly is still popular. She's relevant today still because what she does is excellent. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's just, I think there's just a broader art artistry with people like her and Garth. I mean, they're, they're just, I don't know, man, but I, you know, again, when you say that, it sounds like you're knocking, you know, the the current, you know, playlisters like Red Aikens and or not Red, but Thomas Red. I'm thinking of his dad. No, Red Aikens and, was uh, excellent though. Yes. You know, yeah, I love Red. Yeah, I played on some of his records back in the day, and now my kid plays on his boys' records, which is funny. But it's it, the the thing is, is um, I, I just I'm not knocking those guys. I just you know you like what you like, and I like music that's a little more has a little more um, dynamics and maybe a road chord change here or there or maybe something's just mixed up on the production not quite so hi-fi or something i don't know the records they're putting out right now sound great and they there's definitely a thing to them and i've had to learn some of those components with some of the young kids that i've produced you know they want to come in and sound like thomas Rhett, and it's like okay well let's let's pick it apart and see what they're doing but so I can appreciate it. I don't know. I just, you know, I, I'm definitely feeling my age on that one, though. And, you know, we were exposed to a broad range of music. We didn't have a funnel or a filter when we, we were able to consume things with a broad range because the radio disc jockeys, it's what I said about you at the beginning of the conversation. You guys were the gatekeepers, so you found the cool stuff and, and presented it, but you had ears like an A&R guy. You had to A&R for your own station uh, market and and nowadays the guys are mindless they're just personalities that you know i don't know and I, I, I don't know radio i'm not knocking radio but there's something different about it i don't like to listen to radio anymore i, I listen to talk shows and stuff because when i want to go listen to music i want to dive into things that i have been recommended to me through friends you know if wow. you sent me something go check this out i would be all over you're absolutely right, and you're not 
you know, the Lone Ranger on this, Kent. I think that I, I can say I'm exactly the same way. And I think you've got you know, things like Pandora and Spotify that allow people to go out and build their own playlists. And if they want to listen to Lyle Lovett, they can put Lyle Lovett, they can create a Lyle Lovett channel. So uh, just technology has changed a lot of things. But let's talk about some of the artists that you've worked with over the years. I think people would be interested if you had to just rattle them off. And then I'm going to ask you at the end of that, tell me the most unique story from your career. Well, <laughs> the the G-rated ones, I'll try to come up with something. Um, yeah, I mean, I you know, I've, I've toured and recorded, you know, like my bio. It's like uh, Keith Whitley, Earl Thomas Conley, Hank Jr., Dee Greenwood, David Slater, Kenny Rogers, Dolly, Reba, the Oak Ridge Boys, Ricky Van Shelton, Travis Tritt. Uh, who am I forgetting? probably some others you know those are the people i've toured with and then you know i've recorded with and produced gotten to work in the studio with like i mentioned you know haggard and willie that was that was always cool tony rice one of my guitar hero legends um keith urban uh trying to think of people you would find interesting um you know in the rock world richie sambora i don't know man i you got me on the spot it's, it's a lot of people i've gotten I found myself in some great situations. Chet Atkins, Skaggs, really living the dream. Emmy Lou Harris, you know, I've gotten to really work with a lot of people through the recording arts that have just been dream situations for me. Have you found and that word of mouth was really the way that you found your way to the next gig? Yeah. One, one artist yeah. would say, hey, uh, call Kent. He can do what you need. Man, even to this day, like, I, I don't have social media. I have a Facebook page that I'm very rarely... I get on there to see about your peacocks and stuff. I don't care about, you know, you get bombarded with, hey, here's the cool thing I'm doing today, you know. You know, it's like, oh, come on, man. I call it brag book. You know, everybody gets on there and tries to look cool, <laughs> which is all right. Great, but, yeah. You know, and I've done it too, but it's like, I don't know. But, yeah, uh, I, it's all word of mouth, man. My website's horrible. I don't even, the, my phone rings, and I don't even know how, but I, you know, I work with people all over the world. Literally, you know, I've produced artists in Germany, France, all over the UK, Denmark, Sweden, Australia, China. I mean, I, I don't know. And I, I, they find me because of a body of work, you know, or word of mouth. And, and it's mostly word of mouth. When you have a, you know, when you when you when you're known in, in the music community, that's more powerful than any advertisement that i could put out there you know i wish i was better at the social media but i suck at it so it just is what it is it's word of mouth that's that's how a producer lives and dies and as a player somebody knows my playing and they say hey man we want you to come over and play dobro on this project you know and be like yeah man i'm, I'm there you know that's kind of how it is around here it's just like our hometown where you kind of know who the players are and you know, and you, you move in and out of circles and, uh, you know, and I just want to say to me and talking to you, especially thanks so much to Steve and Paul Mills and you and Doug, Keith Perkins, Alan Thunderbird and Frankie Ritter. I just want to shout out to all those guys in case they hear this, because it's not a day goes by, man. I don't think about those guys and remember the good times of us playing music together and uh, the Jeffries boys and, you know, those guys were all inspiring to me, still are, you know, so talented. 
Dink Terrell, just all those dudes that were hanging around that were just, you know, so good, influential and encouraging and all that, man. We, we had a great little network there for such a small little spot. And back in that day where we were so isolated, you know. Yeah, there was no internet. There was no, no. Facebook or any of that kind of stuff. We were... We would share, you know, if somebody had more gas in their car, that's whose car we would take to go, you know, jam together, or play together. And I was talking to Jim Apel the other days. So, uh, I think Jim was in your grade, was he not? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I was talking to Jim, and Jim made the comment. He said, you know, it's truly amazing the amount of talent that came out of Ashdown, Arkansas. And I had not really thought about it in that way. But he's right. And if you look at the different people from the different eras, I mean, we had uh, Andre Roan, who played for the Miami Dolphins. Yeah. We had, yeah. I mean, you, when I, and I need to share this with the audience. Uh, by the way, you're listening to the John G. Moore podcast. Kent Wells is on the phone from uh, Tennessee. He's actually on FaceTime. We're recording uh, through FaceTime. Kent is such a big deal that the Alumni Association, a couple of years ago, honored Kent and had him as the guest of honor. And it was important enough to Dolly that she actually showed up and came and sang a few songs. And then you reunited with your original band and played some tunes afterwards. I unfortunately couldn't be there. I was in, I think, Little Rock at the time, so I, I missed it. But talk about that and how that came to be. And, and that's got to be kind of, in a way, great, but somewhat humbling, I would think. Yeah, that was awesome, man. It was very humbling and, and um, you know... When you're in your hometown, you're just your little hometown. You're right where, you know, time freezes when you go back home. You're still who you, you're not who you think you are. You're who you are, you know. And um, it was it was very humbling, to say the least, to have that banquet in my honor. And then we were going to have a carport jam, you know. I, I was thinking, hey, man, let's just do a carport jam like we did back in the day. And then um, Dolly I was talking to her one day, and I said, hey, I got to go down and do this thing in my hometown. I said, they're having a little banquet for me. And she goes, oh, I want to come down and roast you. Like, well, I don't think it's like going to be a roast now. I said, you can't be telling stories on me. And she goes, oh, yeah, I'm coming. I'm, I'm coming. And uh, So then I said, well, maybe our carport jam better, we better be a little bigger. So we put the uh, we put a stage up out there at, at – uh, is Weldon? I can't remember the guy's name, but he he has the airstrip out there. Yeah, he's the one with the airstrip, isn't he? Yeah, and and so you know, and and they had a nice crowd come out there, and, and Dolly, of course, played a few songs, and I brought some of the young kids that I've been working with out here to play because in the beginning that's all it was going to be, and then Bondago jammed, and some others jammed. It's kind of a blur. I was so tired by the time we got to the concert <laughs> from the whole weekend festivities, man. It was like uh, I felt like Jim Carrey on the Chair of Cheer at the Who at, in Whoville on that movie, The Grinch, where they're dragging him around. That's what I felt like. But it was like, man, it was so fun. And, and shout out to to Miss Susan Simmons and all that group for for doing that for me. That that felt so good. It was nice for my mom and my family too. You know, just a nice hometown deal. I got to see so many of my uh, teachers and old friends and faces that. I'm sure they're looking at me going, good Lord. And I was looking at them going, I don't know if I know who this is, you know. They're probably doing the same for me. 
Well, it was I, fun, man. I, I I hate that you missed that. I, yeah, I love to have you up there singing some foreigner songs or something. I would have loved to have been there and was actually originally planning on going, and something happened with family, and I I had to go and couldn't be there. But um, you mentioned teachers, and I I think it's really important, and I'm sure you did this when you were there. When I published my first book, I made a post on Facebook, and I recognized Mrs. Martha Trusley. She is absolutely responsible for me being a published author today because she asked me to stay after class one day, and I thought I was in trouble, And because mm-hmm. back then that was not an uncommon thing for me to be in trouble. And she, <laughs> and she said to me, she said, you, you have a gift for writing, and you need to pursue it. And I never forgot that. And so later, when I published my first book, I I recognized her for that. And I think it's important that we talked about all the people who've come out of Ashdown, who've, you know, done what they've done, accomplished what they've accomplished. We didn't do this by ourselves. It was there were people who were our biggest cheerleaders, you know, our parents, of course, being our biggest cheerleaders and the good Lord above. But if, if you have a teacher who's still with us, it's a great opportunity and, a, and the right thing to do to, to pick up the phone and call or to send them a note, write them a letter, and just thank them. Well, that's so true, and that's inspired me to do that this week. Because there's a couple I didn't get to see while I was down there that I was hoping, and uh, they weren't there. And I wanted to, to reach out and thank them. A guy mm. told me one time to, to be sure and send letters to people who are influential in your life and let them know that. Don't assume they know that, you know, and that's a good, I've done that a few times and it's pretty profound effect when you do it. Yeah. And, it, it, and it's, it, it's a win-win. It's, it's good for your, your soul and good for the person that you're expressing that to. And boy, no, nobody liked teachers. And I remember Miss Trusley. She was awesome. I remember Betty Lou Cobb. She was awesome. She, she was so always so uplifting and encouraging, you know, just people. a fireball you know how high school is, man. You just always feel like, a jerk in high school. I don't care how how cool you think you are. You always feel in your deep down. I'm just a jerk, man. I'm barely surviving this, you know. Well, you mentioned Betty Lou Cobb. I don't know if you remember, but you and Paul Mills and Keith Perkins and myself, we played an assembly. I don't know if you remember us well, of doing this. I remember that. I yeah, we, well, it was it was Mrs. Cobb. Betty Lou Cobb was the reason. I know she That's was the saying. one. She was the one that uh, I was talking to in the hall one day, and she said, "Are you guys still playing in the?" Of course, in her mind, we were all in the same band, right? But I was like, yeah. "No, no, we have different." She said, "Well, why don't you guys uh, play for us at the school?" Well, I was thinking she was talking about just like a, a little event or something. But no, she had us on the stage and like we had the entire school came and sat in the auditorium. It was way bigger than any of us expected. But I do remember that. I think there's some pictures somewhere. Paul Mills may have them. But yeah, um, I have one somewhere, man, of of us. and You're you're up there rocking it out. Well, you need to Um, send that to me. I don't have it. Well, I'll try to find it. I got it somewhere. I don't have it digital, but I snap a picture of it on my phone and, and send it to you. That'd be awesome. Yeah, there was there was good times, man. Really was. Um, yeah. What uh, advice do you have for artists today? Because things in 40 years, things have completely changed and and how you get into the business. Is YouTube the key to getting noticed? It seems to be what most people do these days or they win some talent show with Simon whatever his name is. How how do you how do you get where you are 
to yeah, that today? Yeah, I think uh, the YouTube component, obviously social media, putting yourself out there is is one way. And But, you know, there's other pathways, man. For people like myself who aren't great at self-promotion, you can still keep your head down and just get really good at what you're doing and let that spread like, you know, moss too. I mean, but the main thing is to get in a community where you've got opportunity for advancement. You know, if that means getting out of your small town and coming to a music center like Nashville or Austin or, you know, any big city's got a music scene. And if you don't have a music scene, do like I did in Nashville, Arkansas and create one. You know, I, I was the epicenter of that one, and it and it actually was a pretty. It's one of the coolest things I ever did was that little show because we packed it out every weekend, and we we were playing songs we wanted to play, and we were playing loud and rocking out, connecting with the crowd. So I would say, don't limit your scope and have a contingency plan that plays into your strengths. You know, if your strength is not social media, and it's not, you'd be surprised how many people struggle with that. Even young kids that don't know how to commandeer that, you know, and do it effectively. And if you're bad at it, like me, it, it can probably do more damage than good. <laughs> but, because um, people go, man, I looked you up, I don't see nothing out there. And I'm like, yeah, that's... I don't put anything up there, you know, and if it is, it's some guy, some drunk captured me at some party getting up and playing or something, you know. But the point is, is that you got to get, um, you got to just get in, the, in, immerse yourself in a scene, whether it's through virtual media or if it's in a real person-to-person -person live scene. That, I, that's really the best advice I have other than that. Uh, you just got to love what you do, and if you love what you do, you'll find a way to make a thing out of it, as they say, you know, just like you've done, man. You've kept your passions going, and you now look at all the enterprises that have sprung out of what, what you've done, starting with just a gift for writing and, and, a, and a good voice and the radio ear and being an A&R guy and a musician, and you've managed to, to keep all that flowing and open more doors. That's what I admire in people, and that's what I'm trying to do every day. That's why I don't just play guitar anymore, you know. That's why I do recording and stuff. I don't want to do the same thing every day, you know. I will say this, though. When it comes right down to it, there's nothing more enjoyable than just sitting in a room in a circle with a bunch of acoustic guitars, with a bunch of buddies, and playing Eagles tunes or whatever, and, you know, having... That's what it's all about. Having an adult beverage and just reminiscing. Because we all started out as people who just wanted to learn how to play. And when it gets right down to it, I think there's, as far as I'm concerned, there's nothing more enjoyable than sitting down with friends and doing that. And when that's, I can yeah. do that, I try to do that. I don't get to do that much anymore. Well, that's, I don't make enough time for that, but that's what it's still all about. Cause at the end of the day, I'm still just that guy trying to learn how to play something new and cool on a guitar. It's like golf. You know, you never master it. You never, you never get to the top of the mountain with it. You, just, you keep you keep striving, and that's where I'm at, and that's what keeps me going, you know, coming back every day. And what we got to do, man, is get together and uh, do that. Somebody's porch and play, because that's really what I wanted to do down there uh, at the at the alumni banquet, and I didn't get – um I, I got it blown out. <laughs> I got it blown out of proportion. Yeah. Next time, what would be more fun for me is if we could just sit and jam with Steve Scarborough and Paul Mills and, Keith Perkins and you and the Jeffries 
I'm in. Frankie and all those guys and just play some songs. And if you got a carport or a patio, let's do it. Well, I've definitely got enough room inside or outside where I live. Of course, I live uh, south of Tyler, Texas. But my mom still lives in Ashdown, and she lives right there on Rankin Street, and she's got a carport. Yeah. So we could do now what we did back then, which is annoy the neighbors. <laughs> annoy the neighbors. Is, that was my job as a kid. Well, look, <laughs> That's what we did. I've, I've got my artist walking in here. Dolly is in the house. Well, tell so, her I said hello, and I appreciate your time. I will do it, and I sure appreciate you including me. In I appreciate continued it. Continued success with, with all of your endeavors, man. Well, real quick, plug the Dolly album before you go. Tell us about it. Yeah, it's just the new uh, Christmas album. Hopefully it'll be released this year, and should be great. She's doing some classics, and she's doing a um, some originals, a good mix, and her spin on them, of course, very magical, and it's going to be great. Do we have a title for the album? Definitely, I think she's calling it Holly Dolly Christmas. Holly Dolly Christmas, very clever. All right, we'll let her know that we plugged it on the podcast, and we'll do our best to help her sell some extra copies there. That sounds great, man. I appreciate you uh, including me and say hi to all the folks back home and let's do plan that carport jam. Let's I'm I'll be ready. Kent Wells has been on the podcast today. Thank you, sir. I appreciate your time. Okay, buddy. Thank you very much. <laughs>